Thanks, Tim. Uh, if uh, you're like me when you read that text, maybe if you're participating in Open Here, you saw that on Monday morning and you were thinking to yourself what I'm thinking at this moment. Uh, first of all, I'm thankful as a preacher that the human sexuality three weeks is over and now I get to preach on circumcision. Like, so that was meant to be funny, but, uh, and probably most of my jokes are going to go like that today, so if you just hang with me. Um, so there we are this morning. Uh, for those of you that I've not met, let me just uh, introduce myself quickly. My name is Kevin Harl, and I serve uh, as one of the uh, senior pastors here at Christ Community, which is basically code for I'm one of the staff members with gray hair. And uh, it is great to be here with you this morning, especially if this is new, you're new here with us this morning. Thanks for coming and worshiping with us. Uh, we are so grateful for the work that you've been doing here in this community. Uh, I told the first service that it's great to be present in Shawnee uh, and to have Christ Community here. And then I recognize, wait, Christ Community has been here for quite some time, as many of you have lived here in this community. But it's great to be able to gather together here now as a church family and worship in this community. So thank you for the work that you've been doing to build this location, this place, uh, this church. Uh, it is really a joy uh, for me to come and be with you. Um, I work across the campuses with our, uh, all five of our campuses, with our campus pastors. I lead that team of people uh, as we work together to multiply churches, multiply disciples, and to multiply leaders. My wife, Sharon, and I, we moved here to Kansas City in 1993, which it's hard to believe it's been that long, uh, and we quickly found Christ Community as our church home. Uh, we were drawn in by the way the Bible was taught and by the community of people who were gathered together, and this quickly, this community of people quickly became our home. Uh, and, and through the process of it, over the last 20 plus years, we have fallen in love with the local church. Uh, and in 2002, after almost 20 years of serving with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which is what brought us here to Kansas City, uh, I had the opportunity to join the staff of Christ Community and began serving as a pastor. Sharon and I have two grown sons uh, who, to Sharon's delight, are both now married. And so when we gather together as a family, she's not the only guy in the house, uh, which she's so grateful for. Uh, I think there's another TV that happens somewhere that's not ESPN. I, I don't know exactly what happens there. Uh, and in September of this year, we stepped into a brand new season of our life as we became grandparents. Uh, I don't know how that happened. Uh, I told the first service, I think I'm only four years older than Tim, so I don't know how it actually happened that I, you know, I'm a granddad. Um, there's actually, I decided this morning, there's no better way to start a sermon than to uh, pictures of adorable babies. So I want you to meet Landon. This is our grandson, Landon. Uh, isn't he awesome? He has the biggest eyes, and it, it's, he takes after his dad. We, Sharon and I were always stopped in the grocery store by people's like, look at his eyes. Uh, he has the largest eyes. He's very expressive with his eyes, which means he can smile like this, and he can also make this face right here. Isn't that awesome? It's like, I don't know what was happening in that moment. And I think he's just like, Dad, please stop taking pictures of me. Would you please stop taking pictures? Um, both of our boys and their wives and Landon uh, live in Tulsa, which means that we've been burning up the road between here and Tulsa over the last five months. And to make it more exciting for us, uh, our youngest son is expecting his first, he and his wife are expecting their first child, another grandson, uh, at the end of April. Uh, which is just amazing for us. Um, so that's probably enough pictures of Landon right now. If you want more, just come and find me after the service. I, I have more here on the iPad. Happy to share with you. So I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. 
I'm a father, I'm a father-in-law, and now a granddad. And there's probably one more thing you need to know about me before I continue this uh, message this morning, is that I'm an early adapter, or an early adopter of all Apple products. Anybody else here? I hear an amen out there. Um, it started actually in 1984 for me, before some of you were born, uh, with the purchase of my first Macintosh computer. Yes, I think I've had almost every product since then, except for the Newton, which by the grace of God, I avoided that one. Uh, and that's, for those of you that don't know, that's a little Apple humor for those of you that have been paying attention uh, to Apple over the years. Apple has this way of stirring up in me a longing for something I didn't know I needed. Anybody relate to that? And it happened again this week for me. Um, if you've paid attention this week to the news, uh, I now need a computer on my wrist. Anybody thinking they need one too? Uh, my discontentment actually started in the fall when Apple gave us a sneak peek of the Apple Watch. And I immediately realized, I don't know what it does, but that I need that. And I was so, I have enough forethought to actually ask for it for Christmas. And my birthday is just a few days after Christmas, so I always get those combo gifts things. So I thought, this, I can lump those together. And I said, Sharon, here's what I want for Christmas and my birthday. I want an Apple Watch. So I was uh, graced on Sunday morning to open up my Christmas present, which was one of my old watches wrapped around a Granny Smith apple. <laughs> and this was either Sharon, Sharon mocking me or saying, go ahead and buy one when it comes. Uh, and I chose the latter. Uh, that's what I believe she was actually saying to me. And so in about 40 days, with the arrival of the Apple Watch, I will once again be content. I will take a step of closing the gap between the life we live and the life we long to live. This, I, I'm now going to be able to be just a little bit closer. Uh, but before you walk out, let me just make sure you know I'm kidding, all right? Sort of, sort of kidding. This is often how I live. And I have a hunch that it's often how you live as well. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm alone here. You, you might, it might not be Apple products for you. Um, and you might be looking at my so-called need and secretly judging me as I stand here before you. But we live in a culture where it is normative to sort of live with a low-grade level of discontentment and to have things in front of us that we're longing for. If I could only own that, or if I could only live there, or if I could only have that job or that salary or date that person or have a child or go to that college, then... I'll be content. This isn't new, by the way. In the 1800s, these words were penned. Man never has what he wants because he wants everything. This morning, as we dig and continue to look in the text in the, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, I think we're going to find that this is what they're wrestling with as well. So if you have your Bibles and want to follow along this morning, we're going to look in the seventh chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're new... Uh, we've been journeying through this for a few months now together, and we come to the seventh chapter in the middle part of the seventh chapter as we start today. As we dig into this, I think that we'll see a lack of contentment was affecting the early church and these new followers of Jesus. And let's get that in our head. Remember, this is the church just starting. These people don't have a generation of Christians to follow. These are first-generation Christians who have who've just now begun to gather together. And they, they arrive from various ethnic backgrounds, 
a variety of economic contexts, and they begin to gather together in this ancient city of Corinth. You see, the early church created a unique new dynamic. It's likely that slaves were worshiping with slave owners. Social classes were mixing. And many were seeing for the very first time, up close and personal, the possibilities what could happen if they just could get out of their current context. You see that elusive other side of the fence where the grass is always greener seemed for the first time for many within reach. And although they didn't really understand what was over there, they wanted it. And they knew that if they could just get there, that if they could just change their life, then they would finally be content. And Paul tells him something I think we all need to hear, I know I need to hear this morning, and that is that you don't have to change to be faithful. Now, for those of you that grew up in the church and maybe have spent a lot of time attending and listening to sermons on Sunday morning, this might seem counterintuitive to you, but hang with me just for a moment. Because when we encounter the Bible honestly, when we truly look at the scripture and the scripture looks at us, we cannot ignore the fact that we are broken people desperately in need of rescue. And this rescue that comes to us as new followers of Jesus brings about a certain change. It creates new life, a new life that is only the work of God. But let's not confuse that kind of change with the kind of change or longing for change that is fueled by our discontentedness. You see, our lack of contentment often leads us to long for changes in our lives. And Paul addresses this head on with the church in Corinth and wants them to know and us to know, I believe, that there are three things that they don't have to do. This message is much more about what we don't have to do. You see, they're longing for, what should I do? How do I get there? How do I claw and scrape to get those things that will finally bring contentment? And Paul says, no, here's three things you don't have to do. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, Paul may be speaking about circumcision in these four verses, but what he's really wanting them to know is this important truth of what it means to follow Jesus. And that is that you don't have to be someone else. Now, you may be hoping that I would skip this conversation on circumcision, right? Uh, Especially the guys. But let me explain why Paul addressed this painful topic. And yes, I put that in there and I thought, am I really gonna say that? But I decided to go ahead and do it. I laughed when I wrote it, so I'm hoping at least, even if you feel guilty laughing out loud, that you'll laugh inward with me. Um, And so the church is forming. Here's the deal. The church is forming. It's full of people from a variety of ethnic backgrounds, some circumcised, some uncircumcised. And believe it or not, they're actually Gentiles who feel like they could serve God better, who they could fit in better in the church, 
if they were circumcised. And so they were getting circumcised. And as if that's not crazy enough, and I don't think Paul's making up hypothetical situations, there were Jews who were circumcised who felt like they could fit in better, that they could serve God better by removing the Old Testament marks and cover up their circumcision. There was actually a medical procedure make it look as if you weren't circumcised. Yeah, right? Now, you might be thinking, well, how do they know? Well, in the ancient city of Corinth, uh, there were public baths. Uh, If you think back to the Olympic competition uh, athletics, um, training was often done without clothes on. And so they knew. This is the context. They recognized, and they just thought, if I could just be like that guy who's such a great leader, then maybe I could finally fit in. Now, this may seem extreme and somewhat ridiculous to us here as we look at them, but let's be careful before we judge them. Because oftentimes we find ourselves longing to be someone else, don't we? We think our life would be much better if we looked a certain way or had been born into a different family or had a different skin color, maybe a little shorter, a little taller. And I'm guessing you have your list. And we can actually begin to spiritualize these things that we should try to change so that we could be used more by God. This is probably what's going on in the church in Corinth. As this variety of people, this new variety of people were mixing, many were thinking, I could be a better, I could be closer to God, I could follow God more uh, as he desires me to if I was part of that ethnic group or that group over there. But Paul wants to make it very clear that you don't have to be someone else. He's in love with you just as he made you, just as he created you, just as you are. Do you see it there in verse 19 and 20? Do you see how he, he, he uses this phrase? He said that we're not to change who we are, but we're to remain in the condition we were in when he called us. Now, here's an important thing for us to get our hands and heart, or head and heart around this morning. The, the church, by definition, is cross-cultural. You see, the gospel does not call us to change who we are to fit into the church. If you're in a minority culture context, however you come into the church, it's not a matter of becoming part of the majority. It's not a matter of adapting, and we all become the same. The church needs you, every one of you, to fully live out the person that God created. And when we don't lose that, when we don't do that, we lose part of God's design for the local church. And we're cheated by the lack of contentment that we each bring to this as we try to fit in and change who we are. God affirms who you are. He's telling the Corinth church and us today that you don't have to be someone else. It's interesting here that there is one command tucked into these four verses. You don't have to change who you are, but there is something you have to do, and that is this work of we are called, no matter what context we come from, to keep his commandments. And Paul continues... Look with me at verse 21. He says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. I actually think the translation here is better. Do not be troubled about it. 
I think that's probably what the NIV has. I think it, it's really more, don't be anxious about it. Don't have anxiety about being a bondservant. Okay, can you imagine that? But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he was called in the Lord, he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Paul makes it clear that in addition to not being someone else, you don't have to do something different. Now, remember again, this is the newly formed church, the early church, first gathering of Christians. And people are coming together, many of them for the first time, with a variety of vocations and callings. There's likely the shop owner and the wealthy marine merchant and the guy who cleans out the public toilets and the slave owner and the slave. And when Paul's letter arrives, I think it's highly likely that they're doing the very thing that many of you did this week. They were thinking that they could really serve God much better if only they could get a better job or do something different or change their situation or context in some way. And to make sure they don't miss it, Paul takes the one job that no one in the congregation would be aspiring to, a bondservant, a type of slave, and tells them, don't be troubled by that. Don't have, have anxiety over that. He tells them that they can fully experience the life that God intended for them right where they are. Now, this can be confusing for us because it seems almost as if Paul is okay with slave ownership here. So let me just step back and address that for a moment. First thing, it's really important for us to recognize that he's not condoning this. He's addressing slaves. It's just, it's, it's there. Paul's saying, you're already in that context. Let me just tell you, you, need, you can honor God right where you are, even as a slave. They don't have to change their place in life. They don't have to get a better job. They don't have to make more money. They don't even have to be free. Although it's interesting, in little parentheses there, he says, if you have a chance to do that, by all means, do it. Another thing to make sure we, we don't mix up here is that this, this type of slavery is what's called a bondservant. And while it's not to be practiced or condoned and is still a form of slavery, it's different than the horrific human trafficking that we think of when we often hear the word slavery. These bondservants were likely in some form of financial debt, and to pay off their debt, they became a servant, a slave to the person who would pay them until their debt was removed, and then once the debt was removed, they could be set free. So step back. For those of you that have been thinking and wishing and dreaming and thought, you know, well, if I could just get out of my job, just think about what it would be like to work in a context where you are required until you could pay it off to be doing the same thing over and over again for the same person. Years, decades, sometime unending Some of you feel this at this moment. Although your bondage is not literal and we have to be careful to not draw a comparison to 
our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, who've experienced the wrong of slavery, we often put ourselves, don't we, into bondage by the lifestyle choices we make, and we become trapped. And we keep telling ourselves that only if our circumstances could change, we really could serve God. If only we could get that job or that promotion or that salary increase or find another place to serve as a volunteer. If only it's just always right out there. And Paul wants to make it clear to them and to us this morning, I think, that you don't have to wait. See, one of the unique things here is that Paul's probably, they've read some of the other letters that Paul has written, and he's talked about this future day that's coming when we'll all be set free in ways that will um, consummate in an eternal kingdom. And they've lost interest in earthly things. And Paul is saying, no, you don't, have, you don't give up those things now. It's not a matter of waiting for that or waiting for that next thing. You can serve God and should serve God right where you are. Students, you know what I'm talking about here, don't you? I mean, I know you're thinking, especially middle schoolers and high schoolers, are thinking, I can't wait until I get out of school. I mean, then life's going to be really good. Or if I can only get into this college, or then, then everything's going to work out for me. Or buy the right house, or live in the right neighborhood. And we end up going through most of life discontent and waiting for something next. This is exactly where the Corinthians find themselves this morning. And Paul wants them to know that they don't have to wait. They don't have to do something different. Now, I have to pause and point out a tension that is sitting there that if you're not thinking it, I, I want to just go ahead and tell you I wrestled with it as I came to this point in the text. Because what I'm about to say may seem almost as a contradiction to the previous point, but hang with me just for a minute. Because I believe both of these statements can be true. Uh, we all need to hear what Paul is saying, that you don't have to do something different. But for some of you, this may be true, that God wants you to do something different. You see, throughout history, God has pulled people out of their current context. He's called them out of their current context and into something different. He's done that. He's doing that. He will continue to do that. And we, as his followers, should be listening, discerning, and responding in obedience, in faith, when that happens. What he's addressing is while we're waiting for that sort of leading and calling, we must be careful to not be discontent where we are. And to begin to spiritualize our discontent, almost saying that God, God wants us whatever is future, and we end up being of no good in the present. You don't have to do something different, but it may be that God is calling you to do something different. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, you know, if, if he only knew my context, you know, there's another out-of-touch pastor who doesn't really understand the real work world, and if he understood how hard it was or how difficult it was or my current context, he would recognize that this, this can't possibly be God's place for me. And I get it. Some of you find yourself 
in, in difficult situations. Some of you for work with no pay, which means no recognition. And some of you just don't think that your work matters at all. But in this passage, Paul, Paul speaks about work of, the work of bond servants, of slaves, as a calling. Wrap your head around that. As an assignment. And both of these words that he uses in the text here carry with it a very deep, meaningful spiritual meaning. You see, the Bible regularly speaks about how we are called to faith. It's the same word. And how we are uh, given gifts. And it's the same word as assigned. And this is exactly what Paul is telling them. Their work and our work is part of God's plan. It's his calling. And the Spirit gives us, assigns for us, gifts to do our work well. Wherever you find yourself right now, God wants to use you. For way too long, pastors have stood in the pulpit and told you that if you really want to serve God, then you should help in children's ministries and with the setup team and the teardown team, all of which are really important. And we have a sign-up list right here after service. No, we don't. Uh, but we've sent to you this message that our work is really important and holy. And your work is, well, it's just a little lower. And for a long time, I believe that to be true. And along the way, I'm sure that I have sent people down a path of discontentment with subtle and sometimes not so subtle messages that my work is important to God. But their work or your work is a work that you really just do to make money so that you can give money to my work and have time to volunteer for my work. And as a pastor, I've taken too little time to help you understand your work and how your work, right where you are, is most likely the primary place where God wants to use you. You see, I believe and our staff believes that faithfulness is not disconnected from where you spend the majority of your time. It, believe me, I think sometimes we want it to be disconnected. It's like, you know, God, I'll give you Sunday. And maybe even just the Sunday morning portion. But let's just, let me do the rest of my life kind of how I want to do that. But for most of us, the primary way that we will serve and love our neighbor is through the work we do. The actual work that we do. Not that we're nice to people or at work or that we have Bible studies or prayer groups at our work, all which are good things. God wants to use us and in our work, right where we are, whether we're getting paid for it or not, where we spend the majority of time is how we will most likely serve God in a primary way. And when we come to understand this, there is a contentment that can come that even the best job can't bring. So hear it from me this morning. You don't have to do something else. Finally, there's one more thing on the to-do list, or the don't-do list, 
for the Corinthians. Look with me at verse 23. Paul writes to them in this letter. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each were called, was called, let him, there let him remain with God. Paul wants them to know this truth that we all need to understand. And that is that you don't have to do it on your own. Serving God faithfully in every aspect of life is a gargantuan task. I mean, this is all of your life. At work, in the context that God has placed you, he wants and longs and expects and and asks of each of us that we are faithful in that spot. And let me just say, that's impossible to do on your own. But it's not impossible through the gospel. The good news that the early Christians here in Corinth were learning to live in this first century, this first generation of Christians, is that this was possible with God. The gospel tells us that this work of God in us and through us in all aspects of life is not a solo effort. And in these two verses, Paul points out two things that I think ought to change everything about the way we see the place that God has called us. First, he tells us that we have been bought with a price. Do you see it there? And do you get the connection that he's just made to an earlier in his letter? Do you remember how the bondservant is set free? He earns enough m- money to gain his freedom. He works for it and works for it and works for it. It usually takes a long time, if ever, to pay it off. But this is not how the gospel works. You see, we're not enslaved to our place of work. We're no longer enslaved. Our debt has been paid. We are now working as free men and women. We're not working to please the audience of our employer, even though good work, well done, usually does that. We are now seeking to please another audience. We have become bondservants of Christ, and we are to work to please him And this work is not so that we can earn his approval. Remember, that's been paid. We're not trying to be set free from him. Christ's death paid the debt. Paul wrote about this payment um, in his letter to the Ephesians. I just love the way he, he wrote these words and the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased them in the message. Listen to this. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We are a free people, free of penalties and punishments, chalked up by all of our misdeeds. We've been bought with a price. And Paul wants us to to know that no matter where we are, wherever God has placed us, we're not working alone. He's bought us with a price, and God is with us. Do you see it right there at the end of verse 24? This ought to change everything. He is our only audience, and he is participating with us in this work. We don't do it alone. Now, I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but because it's so embedded in our culture, I have a hunch that in your sinful heart and in my sinful heart is this longing for change, for something different 
So let, us just, let me just remind us all before we go. We don't have to be someone else. We don't have to do someone diff- something different. We don't have to do it alone. May we be found faithful right where we are. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for our lack of contentment. For the way we long to be someone different or to do something different. Father, forgive me for my anxiety and the way my heart is often troubled, wondering what's next and longing for something different. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for that. Lord, may we trust in you and hope in you. Lord, give us our eyes to see who you created us to be and the way you want to work in us and through us right where we are in the place that you've put us. Help us to see the needs of others around us to take the focus off of our own circumstances so that we may love our neighbor in ways that would honor you. And Father, we pause this morning to thank you most of all for paying our debt and setting us free. We didn't deserve it. We could never repay it.